okay. So, yeah, um, our campaign that we're currently in is called Pray Like Jesus, where we are just looking at the life of Jesus and talking about prayer. So, part of this campaign is practicing prayer. So, we have every Wednesday, 6 a.m. to 6 a.m., 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., we are here praying in the morning, and then in the evening as well, 6 to 8 p.m., we're here praying. And this last Wednesday, we had a night of worship and prayer. So what the idea of those is an opportunity to practice this stuff. So in community with some other people. I hope that you're putting these things into practice at home, in your personal prayer life, um, and you can come and practice praying with all of us. Because in my experience, prayer usually isn't something that we necessarily need a lot more teaching on, it's, which is kind of ironic because I'm teaching a whole series on it, right? It's just something we have to try, right? So I think the real value of this is every week just reminding you, hey, go pray. <laughs> hey, go pray like Jesus. Hey, today, pray like Jesus. And then as we're talking through this, we'll pray in specific ways throughout the week uh, that Jesus prayed. Because I think for a lot of us, it can be, we can just use it as an excuse, right? Like, I don't know how to pray, some of us, we, we really do struggle to learn how to pray. So what we're doing is just looking at the life of Jesus and saying, hey, this is how Jesus prayed. This is how he taught us to pray. So we should pray like Jesus and do what he did when it comes to prayer. The last few weeks, we were looking at the uh, high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. It's a very long prayer recorded that Jesus prays for himself. He prays for the disciples, and he prays for those who will believe the message of the disciples. Man, we, we've looked at Jesus' baptism and how it started with God speaking to him, not necessarily him speaking to the Father, but the Father speaking to him, telling him who he is and telling him that he's pleased with him and that he is his son. So we looked at a bunch of prayer. We went through the, the, the Lord's Prayer. Um, we talked about a lot of stuff. So if you're interested or you haven't been here following along, I encourage you, if you want to learn how to pray more, uh, like Jesus prayed, to go back and look at all of those sermons. Today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Okay, Luke chapter 10 is another example of a short, quick prayer of Jesus. And we're going to start bef back before the prayer, just to like give you the context, um, and so you can kind of see what's happening. Um, yeah, let's just start there. Okay, so Luke chapter 10, starting in verses 1 through 2. We're not going to read through all of this. We're just going to read this section here, and then we'll pause because it talks about prayer, and then we'll, I'll catch you up with what's going on, and then we'll get to Jesus' prayer. Verse 1 says this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. So here, Jesus is appointing 72 of his followers. So there were more people following him than just the 12. Jesus usually had a large crowd around him all the time. Um, so Jesus appoints 72, and he sends them out. 72 is, is a very symbolic number. It's a very significant number in the New Testament. And how biblical authors tend to use numbers is, is less how we would think of it, like counting them out and making sure that it's exactly the number in in ancient literature and when they were writing, it was more about the symbolism of the number and what it meant than the specific actual number of the number of people. They thought, they thought differently than we do. In Eastern cultures, they still think differently than we do about this. Less scientific, less exact, less specific, more meaning. So he's going for meaning here. So when he says 72 others, um, 
Previously, he had sent out the 12, 72. Uh, it, it's likely referring to back what Moses did in Exodus, where Moses, he appoints 70 other people to lead with him. And in that text, it says that God, took some, that God would give them, the 70 other elders, the spirit of God to do ministry like Moses did. They'd give him a portion of God's spirit to do ministry. So that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. This kingdom work that Jesus is starting is now being done by more people. It's expanding. It's bigger. It's kind of a hint of Acts, that this is going to grow. It's going to continue to expand beyond Jesus, beyond the 12, and just his small group. It's going to get bigger and bigger. 72, according to my math, is also a derivative of 12. Okay, It's 6. I, I typed into the calculator to figure that out. I'm a theology guy, not a math guy, if you can't tell. Math is hard for me. Um, so, <laughs> so what that means, 12 is a, a number that usually implies God's sovereign purpose and the fulfillment of his will. Okay, so uh, the number six here being a, being a derivative of 12, 72, whatever. 72 divided by 12 is six. Can imply that this is like the the, the Messianic era, this is the time of work, okay? So the seventh day was the day of rest. So like this is the time of working for the kingdom of God, bringing the kingdom of God here to creation. Perhaps it's looking ahead then to the resurrection and this new kingdom that Jesus would establish as being like the seventh day rest. Or he just picked 72 because that's how many people were there and that's how many people he trusted. I don't know, but most likely a symbolic number. And then he sends them out two by two, okay, which if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the uh, kids' ministry, Sunday school story of Noah, right, two by two could be the implication saying that, hey, this is God's judgment coming, okay, which probably makes sense because of everything else that Jesus is going to say after this, that by the message going out, just by like Noah and the ark was kind of a, a, a sign of God's judgment coming upon all of creation. So when Jesus sends out the 72, what he's going to say a lot after this is, what do you do when people accept the message and what do you do when people don't accept the message? He's going to pronounce a bunch of woes on these cities that haven't accepted the message. Okay, so this is kind of like a judgment. So when the message of the good news of God's kingdom goes out, for those who don't accept it, there's judgment, right? For those who do, then there's welcome into the kingdom of God. So that's probably what he's hinting at here with the two-by-two two language. Into every town and place where he himself was about to go, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, okay? But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, so a couple things that we notice here. Harvesting was a very common um, analogy in, in this agricultural society in the first century, so they would have gotten this. And this, this is the, the idea that there are people who are coming into God's kingdom, and Jesus is sending them out to preach the message. They will accept it and come into God's kingdom. That's the harvest, what he's talking about. So he tells them to pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Okay, this is a word that's most, it's usually not used for prayer. It's not the most common word used for prayer in the New Testament. But this word, uh, it means beg, essentially. It's like beg God, beg God to send out workers into the harvest fields. 
Then he calls the father the Lord of the harvest because it's his harvest, he says later. God is the one who will bring people into his kingdom. It's his harvest. And then he says, hey, go preach, <laughs> which I love. He, right after this, he says, he tells them to pray, to beg God to send out people into the harvest. The very next word in the ESV is go. Okay, so he says, pray for God to send people out in the harvest field and go. So it's not this sense of like pray, sit back, and hope God does something. No, it's pray, and then you go, and you go do this work that he's called them to. We'll, we'll apply that later. All right, so jumping ahead, we're going we're gonna to skip ahead. I wanted to include this to give you the context of what's happening. Jesus sending out the 72 on mission, and then um, he... He, pronounced, he tells them a bunch of instructions. He says, do this, do that. When you come into this city, stay in one place. If, if they accept you, if they don't, you know, brush the dust off of your feet. Right? The judgment, if they don't accept you, is going to be more harsh than it is for Sodom. Okay? Ooh. So pretty intense judgment-type language that he, that he includes in the instructions here, which, again, leads us to this judgment mentality. Um, so... He sends them out, gives them a bunch of instructions, pronounces a bunch of woes on the cities that reject him and reject his message. And then he says that if anybody rejects their message, essentially they are rejecting the Father, which is pretty strong language, right? Okay, so they go out, they do the mission. They, they, Jesus is following along with them. They're following along with Jesus on the road. So he sends them out in front of him, and then he follows up and... When they meet up again, here's what he says. He says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, this is likely just something that Jesus is, is using as a vivid picture of Satan's being defeated by him, his work, the kingdom of God, and the disciples that he has sent out to do his mission. Okay, so Satan no longer has authority power over them and here on earth. Okay, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So what he's saying is using this image, which is common to them, serpents, scorpions in this part of the world, of evil, okay? The, the disciples, the 72 that Jesus has sent out, evil no longer has power and authority over them and nothing shall hurt them. And remember, the disciples came back rejoicing, saying, the demons even submit to us. This is crazy. This is really cool. They're super excited about that. And Jesus, he doesn't totally discount that. He says, yeah, I'm gonna, I've given you this authority. You have all of this authority in my name that evil won't hurt you. Nevertheless, he says, this is huge. So he doesn't discount their joy, but he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. He redirects it that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, so they came back from the successful mission saying, this is awesome. Even the demons listen to us. This is crazy. Jesus says, I have given you great authority over evil in this world. Yes, but don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Again, that names are written in heaven means you've been accepted by God. You're in his family. Okay, then verse 21. This is, now we've come to Jesus' prayer. It says, In that same hour, 
he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. That same hour, not just the literal 60 minutes, just that same time frame, that, that time. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So this is one of, I believe, two times in the, in the Gospels that it records Jesus' joy in what Jesus did. So Jesus is joyful, doesn't happen often in the New Testament, and so he prays. So, so far we've seen in this series that Jesus prays when he was in sorrow and in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's hanging on the cross, he prays. And now we see when he's kind of like overflowing with joy, he prays. So Jesus, throughout his life, when things happen, when emotions are running high, he prays. Whether it's extreme joy or extreme sorrow, he prays. And notice also how simple this is. He's joyful, and so he just prays. We've seen throughout this series that Jesus will occasionally go away and pray and go off on his own and pray. He had a regular habit and rhythm of that. We also see here that Jesus, when the moment strikes, he just prays, and he just talks to God. He has this very simple, conversational prayer life with God. And it says that he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So, what does that mean? That could mean a few different things. Um, most likely, the meaning is he's rejoicing with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in him. Uh, he's rejoicing with the Holy Spirit. So he's rejoicing with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I thank you, Father. Okay, so here we see this whole, like, Trinitarian joyful experience. Jesus, the Son, is rejoicing with the Holy Spirit and praying to the Father. He says, thank you. Father. That word thank you, again, isn't the most common word used to ascribe thanks in the New Testament. It specifically is meaning like thankful praise. Uh, some translations say, I praise you, Father. Okay, so he's grateful for something that God has done that he has seen in his life, and in response, he praises. Okay, so we're going to say thankful praise or uh, grateful praise. I'll say both throughout the result of something awesome that God has done. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Okay, so here's what he's thanking God for. Again, he's not thanking God for the success of the mission, right? He's pointing them to the greater cause for joy. The greater cause for joy is that their names are written in heaven, that they have been accepted by the Father, and that God has revealed this truth to them and given them this power, right? So that's what he's calling them to thank God for, and that's what he's thanking God for here. That is the true cause of their joy, at least it should be. He says that, that God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and most likely referring to the scribes and the Pharisees, right? This isn't saying that we shouldn't pursue wisdom, we shouldn't pursue understanding. The Proverbs are full of texts telling us that we should pursue wisdom and we should pursue understanding. Those are good things, okay? But in Jesus' life, in his ministry, who understood who he was more? It wasn't the scribes and the Pharisees. It was fishermen, like Peter. It was the tax collectors, like Levi or Matthew. It was people who were outcasts of society, especially in the Jewish culture. Sinners, the sick, the poor. This is kind of the theme of the whole, this whole section in Luke. 
As Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem, when he encounters, he'll like a few different banquets kind of illustrate this well. When he has a banquet or a dinner with the scribes and the Pharisees, they usually get into a fight and they argue and they start yelling at each other, right? And then when he meets with the tax collectors and sinners and people who are much lower class in society in that day and age, they accept him. They love him. These are wonderful experiences. And they come to believe in Jesus. So we see this dichotomy at play. And Jesus, in his prayer here, he says very simply that God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding, scribes and the Pharisees, and he has revealed them to little children. So again, his disciples are in his hearing here. They're like, hey, we believe that you're calling us children? Ouch, bro. It's a little on the nose, okay? You're calling me like immature. What are you saying, Jesus? Um, No, it it just implies that they weren't wise and learned. They didn't have these years of understanding built up and their hearts had not been uh, hardened by that. So the point here is not that wisdom and understanding are bad things. The point is God is free to choose whomever he wills for salvation. That's that's the point. Even if it doesn't make pragmatic sense, because pragmatically when we think about Jesus coming and revealing the Messiah to people in Jerusalem and in Israel in this day, I would have said, hey, go to the most powerful, most influential, wealthiest people who can get things done. Get them to believe, and then we're going to see this kingdom go and blow up. That's the practical side of me saying that. And Jesus says, no, that wasn't God's will. God's will is to reveal Jesus, that he is the Messiah, to little children. For such was your gracious will. That's just... It's just God's will. The NIV translates it, and it says that he was pleased to do so, which is probably a better translation. It just pleased God to do that. That was just what he wanted to do, so he did it. And this is Jesus praying to the Father. So the idea here is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. It's just God's will to do this. God will choose whom he will choose. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Band, you guys can come and get set up. And no one knows the Son. Wait. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is, except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we see in this part of the prayer, Jesus is participating in accomplishing the will of the Father. Jesus fully submits to the will of the Father. He does what God's will is. And here we see another piece of that. That Jesus, the Son, chooses to reveal who he is, the nature of God's kingdom, to whom he wills. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What Jesus is saying here, again, so the disciples, uh, those 72 who had just returned, they're not only blessed as little children, uh, as recipients of divine favor, because God graciously chose them in his will, 
to know who Jesus is and to believe in him, but they're blessed in the scope of all of human history too. Because throughout the Old Testament, kings like David longed to see the era of the Messiah. Prophets like Abraham and Moses, they longed to see the Messiah of God, the chosen one of God and this new kingdom coming. And they didn't see it. Hebrews 11 is a good reading on this. But the Messiah came in the era of the disciples. So he's saying, you guys are so blessed to see this. Don't miss that. Don't miss the blessing that God has come and visited you. Let's pray. I'll come up later and apply this. And then we're going to sing a few songs first. Lord, Jesus, we thank you for praying publicly for us. Thank you, Lord, that you had this intimate relationship with the Father and that you modeled for us what this can look like. Oh, Lord, we can pray and just in our joy. We can pray in our sorrow. We come to you, Lord, with everything throughout our day. So, Lord, be honored and glorified in our praise as we worship you because, Lord, you are worthy of it for what you do and for who you are. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the work that you are doing in us. That God, our salvation, our transformation, all of it is worked done by you, Lord. It's impossible without you. Lord, so many of us have tried tried on our own to change our life, tried on our own to, to be better. And Lord, we find that so wanting. Lord, we're left in our failure and the distress and the anxiety and the fear and the worry of constantly falling short. But Lord, because of your gospel, because of Jesus, our righteousness is not in and of ourselves. We are not made right with you, Father, by any work of our own, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we lay hold of that by believing and trusting in you in everything. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your gospel. Amen. You guys can have a seat. I don't, I don't really say this enough, but that whole first part uh, where I'm going through the text, the point of that is because we, we here at LifeBridge, we really think that the Bible is our source of truth. The Bible is our source of, of life, uh, authority for our life. We'll say that. The Bible is what we hold ourselves under. So when we come to a truth in Scripture that we should live our life according to that. So when I'm going through that text, the point is for you to see that I'm not making this up, one, <laughs> that this isn't just John's cool ideas. Like, no, we think this is what the Bible says. And then when we come to understand what God says to us, what God has revealed to us through scripture, primarily through Jesus, then we should hold ourselves under that authority. Okay, so then when I apply this, it's just how do we apply it to today? based on what the truth of God says, okay? This is, so I do that, I walk through that just to make sure that you guys see and are aware 
This isn't just the pastor making this stuff up, okay? This is based in scripture. So the first thing that we see on prayer in the text that we read is that we should pray for the mission. Remember in the beginning, Jesus says, pray earnestly for laborers to go out into the harvest, that we should beg God to send out laborers into the harvest field. We should beg God to send people on mission for Jesus to share the good news of the kingdom, to do all of the work of the kingdom, to bring healing, to cast out the demonic and to do away with evil, to preach the good news of Jesus and who he is, that we should pray for that. So that should be a part of our regular prayer rhythm is praying for God to send people. But also, <laughs> this is a very dangerous prayer because remember the very next word after Jesus tells them to pray is go. So he tells them to pray, but be, be aware, you might be praying for yourself. You are praying for yourself. So when you pray for God to send out laborers into the mission field, you're not just praying for God to call someone to the Middle East to go do missions. You're praying for that, but not just that. You're praying for yourself to go and do the mission that God has called you to. Because remember, in the text, Jesus sends them out ahead of him. He sends them to Samaria and Israel. And Jesus is following up alongside them. These are local places that they know, that they've been before. They've traveled throughout this region many times. So when we pray for the mission we're praying for, the few whom God will call to go into the foreign country and live their life as a missionary and do work in the missions field or in a missions organization. Some of you, that may be what God is calling you to. And when you sense that calling, lean into that and go if God is calling you there. But for all of us, God is calling us to mission here. So when we pray for mission, we're praying for ourselves to do to bring to do kingdom work in our neighborhoods. Those simple tasks that you do of helping your neighbor, of caring for them when you see that they're in need. I've heard countless stories. As I'm looking around the room, I hear I know there's so many stories of people who have done just that. That is bringing the kingdom work and fulfilling this prayer that Jesus told us to pray. When we pray, Pray for God to send laborers into your workplace. You're praying for you to go into your workplace and fulfill and carry out the mission of the kingdom of God here. That the conversations that you have around the water cooler, do they, they probably don't have water coolers, on Zoom, the conversations that you have on Zoom now, right? Like those are opportunities for kingdom work. To, to hey, what'd you do this weekend? To represent Jesus in the way that you lived your life. And the way that you are doing your work, you're doing your work well. Pray for our city, for the mission, the kingdom mission to come to our city of Burlington, for God to do his work here. Pray for us all to be on mission, to be salt and light in the environments that God has called us to. So pray for this. Add this to your regular prayer rhythm, your prayer routine. And... Be aware that you're praying for yourself, that God is calling you to mission. Next, make prayer a constant conversation. 
This is one of the beauties of this simple prayer of Jesus is that he just, he just stops and he prays. He pauses. In that same hour, he just pauses and he prays. Prayer isn't always just something that you go alone in the prayer closet for, to be by yourself in solitude. That is part of prayer and something we should do and something Jesus modeled. But prayer is also just a regular conversation. When something good happens, pray. <laughs> something bad happens, pray. Just regularly be talking to God. Remember the first week of this series, we talked about how God is our Father, and we should just tell him everything. Just tell him everything. Just talk to him about your day. Like my kids constantly, hey, Daddy, hey, Daddy, hey, Daddy. They're telling me all of this stuff. Most of it's irrelevant, right? But they just keep talking to me. And that's how we should respond to our Father. Whatever's happening in our day, hey, God, hey, Lord, Father, God, here's what happened. This is what happened today. This is awesome. When we experience emotions, just talk to God. Father, here's what's happening. When we win, thank the Lord. When you lose, just pray, your will be done, God. Thank you that I can trust in your will. And then when you get participation trophies, just say, Lord, help us. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help it. I wrote win and lose. I'm like, oh man, this is good. I thought it was a good joke. If you're into participation trophies, that's cool. I'm not, I just thought it was a good joke. All right. Um, we need to make prayer a constant conversation and regular rhythm with God. Prayer when life is hard and prayer when life is good. I don't know about you, but in my life, what I've found is it's much harder to pray in the times of rejoicing than it is in the times of despair. I'm so glad Jesus set us models for both. Because when I'm in pain and agony and in anguish, it's kind of easy for me to turn to God because I have no place else to go. And I'm at the end of myself. When I'm rejoicing, when I see success or something good happening, my tendency is to take the credit for myself and say, good job, John, way to go. Instead, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus rejoices in thankful praise to the Father when he finds success and something good happens. So, be aware of this. When life is good, it's very easy to become complacent. When you find cause for joy, it is very easy to stop praying. Jesus' life models something totally different. He prayed when he was rejoicing. In joy, he turned to the Father in prayer. Then, finally, rejoice not in your success, but in your status. So remember, Jesus tells them, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, which is pretty cool, right? They saw some stuff on those missionary journeys, and that was awesome. But he says to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then in his prayer, in his cause for rejoicing when he prays to the Father, he doesn't, he doesn't give thankful praise to the Father for the missionary success. He gives praise to the Father for choosing them. That God chose to reveal Jesus, not to the wise and the understanding, but to little children. So, God, thanks for this awesome plan and will of yours that you are carrying out. That's awesome that you chose them. So, we've talked about this the last few weeks. And by the way, I'm not going out of my way to like come to these reformed theology texts of election and salvation. I'm not going out of my way. That is a reformed guy thing to do, but it's not what I'm doing, okay? This is just how Jesus prayed. 
He prayed like this in the Gospel of John, and he's praying like this in the Gospel of Luke. This is how he prayed, was in this sense of God's sovereign grace and knowing that God is sovereign and in control of all things. So we should rejoice that God has chosen us. As we've been talking about, if if you have this sense that you are abiding in Christ, if you know that God has given you his spirit, that you are in Christ and you are living for him, you have seen him sanctifying you, you've seen his work in your life and you have his joy and you have his peace and his presence is with you, all of those ways that we know that we are in Christ, rejoice in that. That is the greater cause for joy than success. Success even in good things. Your status as a child of God is greater cause for joy than even those good missionary things, those good missions accomplishments, things like people getting baptized, people praying to accept Jesus and believing in Jesus, the number of people who attend your church, the number of people that you have helped that week. All of those things are really good things, but those are not the greater cause for joy that Jesus says. The greater cause for joy is that your name is written in heaven. I think the American church really needs to hear this. We need to get this right because we have been obsessed with impact. We've been obsessed with numerical growth, with all of the metrics and things that we can say. Not bad, but... We've been obsessed with them. Perhaps you've heard of Phil Vischer. He's a he's the guy who wrote Veggie Tales. <laughs> Anybody remember Veggie Tales? Okay, the silly little cucumber and tomato and all that. They get into all these little goofy, quirky scenarios. It's very fun. Anyways, the guy that wrote that, he I got this from Skagitani's book called With. He says it in here. It says, this led Phil Vischer after you know, things came crumbling down with VeggieTales to conclude that impact was everything, or was before things came crumbling down. This is Phil Vischer talking. He says, God would never call us from greater impact to lesser impact, he wrote. How many kids do you invite to Sunday? How many souls have you won? How big is your church? How many people will be in heaven because of your efforts? Impact, man. And if you know Phil Vischer, that's how he talks, right? But after losing his company in 2003, Vischer began to question the validity of that life for God values he inherited and had driven his early career. Vischer says, the more I dove into scripture, the more I realized I had been deluded. I had grown up drinking a dangerous cocktail, a mix of the gospel, the Protestant work ethic, and the American dream. The savior I was following seemed in hindsight equal parts Jesus, Ben Franklin, and Henry Ford. He said, my eternal value was rooted in what I could accomplish. And I fear that is where many of you are placing your eternal value, is in what you're accomplishing for God. And what that does to us is it puts us in a very dangerous place. If your eternal value is rooted in what you accomplish for God even, and you do accomplish it, that'll lead to pride. If you don't accomplish it, it'll lead to despair when you fail. Neither are good, and neither are true places 
where we should be. Because if we're rejoicing in our success, even in good things, in our ministry success, people coming to know Jesus, baptisms, helping people, all of that stuff, what happens to your joy when that fails? Your joy's gone. Instead, when our joy is in our status as children of God and in Christ, it can never be taken away from you. Whether you're finding success or you're completely failing, you can have this abiding sense of joy because it's not rooted in your accomplishments and your achievements. Because it's rooted in Christ and who you are to him. So we need to rejoice in our status as a child of God. And our response ought to just be thankful praise to God and joy, just like Jesus did. We should rejoice in this, rejoice in who we are to God. Christians shouldn't be like boring, fuddy-duddies who are all about the rules. Okay? <coughs> we can have joy. <laughs> so I invite you to just close your eyes and just pray with me for just a moment. And I want you to think about that thing that is stealing your joy. It might be a good thing. It might be something that you have to continue doing. <laughs> it might be a stressful relationship. It might be a difficult time at work, difficulties with your job. All of those things can tend to steal your joy. I want you to just surrender those things to God and commit to putting your joy in Christ, in him, finding it in your status and who he is. And then finally, just spend a moment, and if you know that you are in Christ, just spend a moment in thankful praise to God and just worship him and praise him with whatever vocabulary you can muster. Just tell God, how thankful you are, how awesome he is. Praise him for saving you, for revealing Jesus to you. And in that, find your joy.